Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Tonight, straight from the source aftershocks as Donald Trump prepares to fire back all the way to the Supreme Court. The new push in America's most populous state to try and boot him off the ballot after Colorado's Supreme Court removed him from the Republican primary for engaging in insurrection. Is California next? The official leading that charge joins us tonight. Also, the fate of the hostages in Gaza. There is word of Israel's new offer, how Hamas is responding as the humanitarian crisis in Gaza grows more desperate by the day. And it's an infamous murder case that once gripped the nation, a pregnant woman killed and her husband's accusation that ignited deep racial divisions and mistrust in Boston. Tonight, an apology 34 years later to the two black men who were wrongly accused. Caitlin Collins is off tonight. I'm Brianna Keeler, and this is The Source. Tonight, Donald Trump's potential return to the White House will depend in part on the same branch of government that repeatedly rebuffed his election conspiracy theories, the judiciary. Colorado, with its 10 electoral votes, unlikely to decide the 2024 race. But there are other cases that are still in the works, one pending in Oregon and others going through the appeals process in Arizona, Minnesota, Michigan, and New Hampshire. And other states could follow suit if folks like our first guest tonight have their way. We'll have more on that in a moment. As for Trump, he has long made clear the filthy he expects from those he considers allies, including on the bench. Once telling supporters, quote, if it's my judges, you know how they're going to decide. And he filled the courts with lots of judges that he likes to think of as his. I appointed nearly 300 federal judges and three great Supreme Court justices. That was a big deal. We appointed over 300 federal judges and three great Supreme Court justices. I got it done. And it's thanks to the three great Supreme Court justices and others on the court. His fate may likely rest with those justices, including Neil Gorsuch, whose own words were quoted in the majority opinion of the Colorado Supreme Court's decision to kick Trump off the ballot there. Trump's very first pick for the Supreme Court had ruled as an appellate judge that states can, quote, exclude from the ballot candidates who are constitutionally prohibited from assuming office. Trump's campaign says he plans to file on appeal before the high court imminently. But in another case, Trump is in no rush to put his fate in the hands of the very people he gave lifetime appointments. Just today, he asked the Supreme Court to hold off on the issue of presidential immunity that special counsel Jack Smith asked the court to expedite. In California, a number of Democrats are pushing for their state to follow Colorado's lead, and that includes our first guest tonight, California Lieutenant Governor Eleni Kunalakis. Uh, thank you so much for being with us this evening. And we should note you sent a letter just hours ago to California Secretary of State to, quote, explore every legal option to remove former President Donald Trump from California's 2024 primary ballot. You cite repeatedly 
the Colorado case. But in that case, and frankly, in these other cases as well that I mentioned, it's anti-Trump groups suing the secretaries of state. Is that what you have in mind? Well, good evening, Brianna. It's great to be with you. Thank you for having me on. Uh, you know, we are in uncharted territory in our country, and the decision out of Colorado um, is a very significant fact. When the Supreme Court of Colorado determines in an examination of the facts that Donald Trump is an insurrectionist and therefore is disqualified from being on the ballot, certainly here in California, we have to look at that information and make the same determination here. Okay, so if you're saying to look at that and then just make that determination outright, uh, Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson, uh, Benson, for instance, said, quote, whether Trump is eligible to run for president again is a decision not for secretaries of state, but for the courts. I spoke with her today. She's she's not going to suddenly get involved in the Michigan effort just because of this Colorado ruling. I is she wrong as you see this? Well, the Secretary of State, certainly I know in California, has the responsibility of determining whether or not people are, are qualified and meet the threshold test to, to be put on the ballot, whether, whether or not they, they, they meet all of the requirements. And what we know out of Colorado uh, and this very important case is that they have determined he is not qualified because he is an insurrectionist. And, and that, to me, is a very important piece of information that our Secretary of State needs to consult with the lawyers who she works with to make a determination if we uh, need to use that uh, as a justification here. On, on that issue uh, of being an insurrectionist, your letter says, quote, the Constitution is clear. You must be 35 years old and not be an insurrectionist to run for president. Is it really that clear, though, if it is going to require, as we expect it will, the Supreme Court to weigh in? Well, that's going to be part of the process as well. Look, this is all about our system of rule of law. And we have never remotely had anyone running for president or be a front runner for president who could come close to be considered an insurrectionist. But we all know what happened uh, back on uh, that terrible day when the Capitol was overrun. We all know the information that has come out since. And so for this Supreme Court in Colorado to evaluate those facts, make that determination, that is very material. You know, it doesn't say you have to go through uh, a legal process and be convicted as an insurrectionist. So that has to be weighed into this as well. And, and, I, and I really think it's also important to note that in the history of our country, we have never had a former president indicted for anything. But Donald Trump has been indicted four times on 91 felony counts. This is a highly unusual situation. Uh, and for the courts and the court in Colorado to make a determination that he meets the threshold as an insurrectionist, uh, we absolutely have to consider that in determining whether or not he's qualified to be on the ballot in California. It also, in addition, as you say, you know, a conviction isn't required. It also doesn't explicitly state the word president as an officer. I know that's something that a lot of people will look at and say, well, that seems pretty obvious. But clearly this is something uh, that the Supreme Court will have to weigh in on. So, so it's not that clear. Well, again, the, you know, 
so much uh, that has to do with Donald Trump is uncharted territory. Uh, but I think that's why the Colorado decision was so important and why the decision of the Secretary of State here in California will also be very important. Yeah, it looks so much to wade through, as you said, uncharted territory indeed. California Lieutenant Governor Eleni Kunalakis, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. And we're joined now by John Dean, the former White House counsel to President Richard Nixon, who certainly knows a thing or two about presidents and Supreme Court cases, and Danielle Hawley, who is Dean Emerita at Howard University School of Law. Thank you to both of you for being with us this evening. Um, John, I wonder, do you think that Colorado is going to prevail when Trump, as we're expecting that he's going to, as his team says he will, appeals this to the Supreme Court? I think there's a high probability that they are going to succeed, uh, that they will be upheld. They have really based their decision on what is very active in the conservative scholarship right now. And that is that the uh, article, uh, section three of article 14 of the 14th Amendment uh, is applicable. And uh, the question is, how do you decide and how do you apply? And, and that's what the California Secretary of State will have to decide. And I'm glad the uh, uh, the Democrats in the state and the lieutenant governor are pushing to get an answer, because uh, that's what we need our answers at this point. Daniel, what do you think? I think it is a novel legal theory. And so it's one that's very untested. There is not a lot of case law in this. I think what the Colorado case gives us is really a perfect setup for the Supreme Court to decide the key legal issue, which is, does Section 3 of the 14th Amendment bar someone who has been found to have engaged in insurrection from being on the ballot? The finding of the district court in Colorado that the former president did engage in insurrection really allows this to be a pure case about the law, the question of whether Section 3 of the 14th Amendment applies. And I think it's difficult to predict what will happen because we don't have a lot of precedent for this, but it will be, you know, an very novel and I think interesting opinion and one that tests the boundaries of separation of powers doctrines. It, there's this legal question. And of course, there's also the political question, as you both are so aware of here. I wonder, John, if a bunch of states follow Colorado's lead, as we're seeing California doing here, only to perhaps be shut down by the Supreme Court. What does that do to the confidence in the execution of the electoral process at the state level? Well, I think it is going to be followed. I think a lot of states are going to jump in. There are already a number of actions going. There were actions going against members of the House and Senate who participated uh, in varying degrees in uh, the insurrection, uh, whatever that means. Uh, we don't have a defined term nef necessarily or how deep their involvement would be. Some of those cases have been thrown. Some are still active. Uh, so this is being tested across the board uh, by lots of states. I think it's possible more than one case could end up in front of the Supreme Court unless they move with great dispatch uh, and they've got a pretty full platter of Trump cases coming their way uh, this could be a multiple state issue. Danielle, I do want to talk about Jack Smith's prosecution of Trump when it comes to these attempts to overturn the election. What does it tell you that Trump would rather not take his claims of immunity to the court now, but instead he wants it heard uh, by the same appeals court that just three weeks ago denied the same claims in that January 6th case? 
I think what that tells us is that this really isn't about the substantive decision that would be made by the appellate court, but is really more about delay. Um, the entire purpose of the former president asking for it to be heard by the appellate court instead of being fast-tracked to the Supreme Court is to delay a decision that may go against him in terms of absolute immunity. So I don't think it's really a strategy about the outcome as much as it is about the timing. All right. Daniel, Holly, John Dean, thank you so much to both of you. Thank you. We do have some breaking news. Just moments ago, six of the 10 Americans released by Venezuela landing back on U.S. soil. You see the pictures here from Kelly Field in San Antonio, this plane carrying them. Uh, this group includes Avon Hernandez, Gerald Kenamore, Joseph Cristela, Savoy Wright, Jason Saad, and Edgar Jose Marval Moreno. All of the Americans will be taken to Brook Army Medical Center for evaluation. Two former Green Berets who are part of this agreement were not on this plane, Luke Denman and Aaron Berry. They were jailed in Venezuela in May of 2020 for their alleged roles in what Venezuela called a failed coup. They were sentenced to 20 years in prison. Let's take a look at these pictures. You see Ambassador Roger Carstens there. Uh, giving these folks hugs as they come out. He's obviously been a part of so many of these releases. And again today, as these wrongfully detained Americans are back on American soil. And ahead, while Trump is dogged by this latest legal blow, his Republican rivals, they aren't exactly pouncing, some even arguing that this could help him. Plus, a wrongful murder accusation over 30 years ago that resulted in the unjust targeting of black men in Boston. Back in the spotlight today, find out why. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Tonight, the aftershocks continue from the political earthquake that was the unprecedented ruling out of Colorado, disqualifying Trump from the state's presidential primary ballot. Joining us now is Scott Jennings, former special assistant to President George W. Bush and a former senior advisor to Senator Mitch McConnell. And also with us is former communications director for the Democratic National Committee, Karen Finney. She also served as senior advisor to Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign. Um, okay, Scott. Trump's former attorney general, Bill Barr, he said this earlier today on the impact that this Colorado ruling has on Trump's 2024 run. I think this kind of action of stretching the law, taking these hyper aggressive positions to try to 
uh, knock Trump out of the race uh, are counterproductive. They backfire. As you know, uh, he, he uh, feeds on grievance, just like a fire feeds on oxygen. And this is going to end up as a grievance that helps him. Is that what you think? Does Trump get a bounce from this among GOP primary voters, right, as you have Nikki Haley gaining on him in New Hampshire? Oh, no question. I mean, every time he's had an engagement with the legal system uh, over the last several months, uh, it's been like jet fuel for his campaign. I mean, it's really what revived his campaign. Remember, after the November 2022 midterm, he was pretty far down and really kind of suffering. And then all of a sudden, uh, these legal cases started and he took off and he really hasn't stopped. And just look at what his opponents are saying uh, tonight and uh, over the last 24 hours. Even Chris Christie, the biggest critic of Donald Trump in this entire primary, uh, is criticizing this decision. So time and again, what we've seen is that Donald Trump constantly finds himself in positions where his opponents are either praising him or defending him. I mean, if you're <laughs> you know, running in a political campaign and the people trying to beat you are trying to lip, put, put you up on their shoulders, it's usually a pretty good day. And I suspect he's going to see a bounce out of this uh, in this primary. Karen, what do Democrats think? Do they worry that this is going to backfire? I don't know that we worry, but I would say that we're at personally, you know, a bit of radical agreement with what Scott is saying. We have seen this continue to fuel uh, the Trump base. And so, again, I think it, we, it'll just re-energize that base. At the same time, there, I think we all need to be concerned that as the Supreme Court takes a look at this and makes their decision, how will that be received, not just by Trump, I mean, either way, it's part of his grievance narrative. But also, how do his supporters take the ruling one way or the other? And how does it impact the 2024 election? I think that's something we still don't know, obviously. But that's what we're more, I think, is more of a concern is, you know, does it, what kind of impact does it have? And does it set off, frankly, um, violence? Does it set off uh, his supporters in some way akin to what we saw on January 6th? If, it, if the decision doesn't go his way with, you know, his quote unquote, his judges. Uh, so I think those are more of the concerns. And, you know, Karen, I wonder uh, it, when it comes to President Biden, he, he told reporters today he believes it is self-evident that Trump is an insurrectionist, but that he believes it's up to the courts to make that decision. How does Biden need to handle this, you know, through a political lens, especially considering this line that Trump peddles and quite effectively to his supporters that it's Biden who is behind his legal woes. Yeah. I mean, ironically, the president has already predicted what the 2024 election will be about. And we will start January with a question about our democracy. Should the voters uh, decide whether or not Trump is fit or does the Supreme Court get to decide? Um, I think the president needs to stay out of it. What he said today was more of an affirmation of what I would say facts that are already in evidence in terms of Trump's role in January 6th and the insurrection. But, you know, I would he ought to stay out of, uh, you know, musings about and I think you, he will the legal case itself so that it's very clear that he is not in any way trying to put a thumb on the scale which is ironic because, of course, Donald Trump is going to talk about the fact that, you know, these are his judges. Yeah. And uh, Scott, going back to something um, Karen said previously, if the Supreme Court does uphold the Colorado decision, which I mean, that would be huge, so consequential. 
What impact do you see that having on the 2024 election? What impact do you see that having on supporters of former President Trump? I mean, if this Supreme Court upholds this decision, I don't even know. I mean, I'll, I'll eat this tie uh, <laughs> the next time we're on together. I mean, I'll be shocked. I'll be shocked if that happens. I mean, I think they're going to punt this thing into the sun and incinerate it, which is going to give Trump another victory lap. So I, I don't even know how to answer your question because the idea that this particular court would uphold this thing. I mean, look across the political spectrum today. You've got Democrats, you've got Republicans, You've got people in Congress who voted to impeach Donald Trump saying this is terrible. You've got Chris Christie saying this is terrible. I mean, the only people I see praising this decision are saying, hey, this may stand uh, are, you know, a handful of folks on cable and, and these four out of seven justices in Colorado, virtually everyone else thinks this is either a terrible idea or it's going to get eviscerated. So I, I, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't <laughs> even know how to one, predict right, it Scott? because to fathom, to fathom this outcome would be would be just a stunning. I don't know what you think, Karen, but I just—I mean, I would be shocked, <laughs> shocked, shocked if that occurred. But it's just me. You know, I would say politically, I wish if this was going to happen, it would have happened before Trump got in the race because now the thought of it is yeah. just mind-boggling. But here we are again with Trump in unprecedented waters. All right. Well, I don't want to think about you eating that tie and all the digestive issues of that, <laughs> Scott, I will say. Uh, but nonetheless, we will wait to see uh, what happens here. Scott Jennings, Karen Finney, thank you to you both. Thanks. Thank you. Tonight, Israel proposing a temporary ceasefire for the exchange of 40 hostages. But will Hamas agree? What sources are telling CNN next? Tonight, new details about the three Israeli hostages mistakenly killed by Israeli forces last week. An IDF spokesperson telling CNN that the voices of the three hostages were captured on a GoPro camera mounted on an Israeli military dog five days before they were shot. We don't know what was said on the recordings, but it was captured during a firefight between the IDF and Hamas terrorists. It was a fight that ended with the terrorists killed and the hostages fleeing for their lives. We now know the IDF later shot and killed those Israeli hostages, even as they emerged shirtless from a building, waving a white flag. Following that tragic mistake, Israel is back at the negotiating table, pushing Hamas for a deal to release remaining hostages. And joining me now is Danny Danone. He's a former Israeli ambassador to the UN. He's a member of the Israeli parliament. Uh, sir, thank you so much for being with us. And I do wanna talk about these three hostages who were killed in a moment. First, though, can you tell us where talks stand to get more hostages released? Thank you for having me, Brianna. So we are trying to do our best to release the 128 hostages. Uh, and we are willing to negotiate with the devil in order to bring them back home. It's not easy. You know, we heard the testimonies from the people who came back. And we know what happened to them, especially to the women who are under the captivity of those terrorists. That's why we are willing to pay a heavy price. Unfortunately, we don't have uh, any news today. Uh, the negotiators, mainly Egypt and Qatar, are trying to, to negotiate, but so far we haven't received any sign of a willingness to move forward. Uh, maybe we will need to apply more pressure on the ground in order to achieve uh, another deal and to release more hostages. An Israeli official tells CNN that Hamas wants more, quote, heavy-duty prisoners than in the previous deal. Is that a deal breaker for Israel or is Israel open to that? 
So I, I will not go into the details, uh, but I will say that, that we are willing to pay a price. We, in the past, we, we released terrorists who committed crimes against Israelis. We are willing to do it also now. But I think it's more than that, Brianna. I have the feeling that Hamas are trying to force us to accept a permanent ceasefire, which is unacceptable. We will not stop until they will surrender or until we defeat them. So yes, we are willing to pay a price to release uh, terrorists, even those who killed Jews in the past, but we are not willing to commit that we cease the fire completely. We will not do it until we complete the mission of eradicating Hamas. You know, talking about these hostages, the IDF says that they fully analyzed the recording from this GoPro on this military dog and that the hostages were vocally identified. Um, the issue, of course, was that the video wasn't analyzed in time. That was video that was actually shot, though, five days before they were killed. What can you tell us that you have learned about this video? And can you tell us why it took that long to analyze it and what Israel is doing to make sure that doesn't happen again? Well, we all can agree with the tragedy. You know, today I visited the community of Alon and Yotam, and I, I went to their house where they were kidnapped from. And you can only imagine what they had to go through, being kidnapped from their home, being in captivity for two months, actually being able to run away, and then being killed a minute before they're being rescued by the IDF. We are looking into the details. Uh, the fight with the terrorists happened a few days before the incident when they were shot. Uh, it is unfortunate. It is unfortunate that we were not able to gather the information. But we have to realize that it's a war zone. Our soldiers are fighting against terrorists, uh, a lot of traps in this area. So I'm not blaming the soldiers. You know, they are under a lot of pressure. We're going to do the proper inquiries. We, we're going to learn the lesson. But I have to admit that we never thought that we would actually meet hostages we are walking free in the streets of Gaza. That was the first time we, we faced such a reality. We will learn the lesson for the future. I mean, look, we knew that that one Russian-Israeli hostage had been freed for days. So we certainly we did know it was a possibility. Uh, I, I will say that. You mentioned alone his father uh, says that Netanyahu is a coward for not calling him to express condolences and look, these are tough calls. And, uh, you know, even if Bibi is going to have to talk to more families who are going to say things uh, that are certainly tough for him to hear, does he owe that to them? Well, I'm, I'm meeting families uh, almost uh, all week long, and we hear them, and, and they're allowed to criticize the government. You know, we, we have to accept that. And the prime minister also... Should Netanyahu call them? Absolutely. And he met with some of the families. You know, some of them are, are more open to meet with him and to accept him. Some are, are very hostile to him, and I, I can understand the, both sides. Uh, but we have to realize, you know, those families, they haven't heard anything from their family members. The Red Cross promised, and that was in the agreement we signed with Hamas under the auspices of Qatar, Egypt, and the U.S., that they will allow visitation of the Red Cross. It never happened. And they know that every day that passes by, it makes it more dangerous for their family members. So I, I can understand the pressure. Uh, the UN is pushing again for a resolution to suspend hostilities. Uh, President Biden said today that the U.S. is negotiating the contours of a re resolution that the U.S. may sign on to. This would be limited. Uh, even after vetoing previous measures, you hear the warnings from America, your strongest ally, about the mounting civilian death toll in Gaza. Will Israel heed it 
if the U.S. goes so far as to sign on to this resolution? First, I hope they will not do that. I, I know that they are negotiating the language of the resolution, and it looks like it's going to happen any day. But let me ask you what you expect to happen. Let's assume the resolution will pass, and it will call for a ceasefire and the release of the hostages. Do you really expect Hamas to release the hostages? No. The only thing that will happen is that there will be more pressure on Israel uh, to cease fire against Hamas. So I don't think it will contribute uh, to, to the efforts of Israel. And I think we should tell to our allies in the U.S., we appreciate your support, but in order to defeat evil, you cannot act with a stop clock and say, okay, we support you, but you have to conclude in a week or two weeks. You know, it will take time, more time, until we will defeat Hamas. The same way the U.S. defeated ISIS and Al-Qaeda, it, it took some time. But in the same case here. Ambassador Danone, thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you. And next, how the latest death toll in Gaza and the worsening humanitarian crisis could threaten President Biden's re-election chances. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Tonight, the Hamas-controlled Ministry of Health has put out a grim new death toll in Gaza, estimating more than 20,000 people have been killed by Israeli forces since the October 7th Hamas attacks in Israel. Now, that total does not distinguish between civilian deaths and the deaths of Hamas terrorists. More than 52,000 have also been wounded, according to the health ministry. CNN cannot independently verify these numbers, but broadly speaking, international organizations, including the UN, accept these numbers as grossly representative of the casualties in Gaza. The humanitarian crisis in Gaza is growing more dire each day. The UN Food Agency warning today, half of Gaza's population is now starving. Civilians going entire days without eating. There is barely any clean water to drink. In fact, aid agencies say more people could die from starvation and disease than bombs here in the coming days. And all of this is putting even more pressure on President Biden to push for a ceasefire in Gaza. Here's how he responded to one reporter's question today. And your reaction to 20,000 dead in Gaza, that death toll reached today, might likely to be reached today? Joining us now to discuss the political impact that this could have here at home is Abbas Alawiya. He's a veteran Democratic strategist and former chief of staff to Missouri Congresswoman Cori Bush. Uh, Abbas, thank you so much for being with us. We're seeing this low marks for President Biden from voters on how he's handling this war. This is according to a New York Times and Siena College poll. Only 33 percent of voters approve, and that drops to 20 percent among younger voters what does he need to do here? Thank you so much for having me, Brianna. Um, you know, I'm sitting here right now in southeastern Michigan. We're on my way here. I was talking to my niece and nephew, Arab American kids, seven and nine years old. I asked them, what should I be saying on TV? And they said, remind everyone the Palestinian kids are kids too, and that babies crying are the same regardless of which baby they are. And so key constituencies here in, in southeastern Michigan and around the country 
are frustrated and disapprove of President Biden's failure to call for an urgent ceasefire, a permanent ceasefire that saves lives. National polls are showing us that, and local polls right here in southeastern Michigan, there was a poll released today by Data for Progress and We the People Michigan that showed that around two-thirds of all voters, 80% of Democratic voters are disapprove, likely voters disapprove of the president's handling. And very interestingly, it also shows that if the president were to reverse course, if he were to call for a ceasefire, his net favorability goes up by 34%, uh, by 34 points among all likely voters and by 55 points among Democratic voters. Calling for a ceasefire is popular and the president, if he's interested in improving his favorability ratings and in saving lives, must do so urgently. So, you know, if the U.S. does sign on to a U.N. resolution, and they are part of the negotiations of, of this for a suspension in hostilities, basically a limited ceasefire, uh, at the UN, would that be it? Would that be enough as you see it? You know, I, I, I'm, I've, I've been in touch with a key constituency for President Biden, uh, folks in the Muslim, Arab, American, and, and Palestinian American communities, and young people all across our country who are looking at our screens as we are on social media and seeing the mass killing of children around a half of the 20,000 people you mentioned, Brianna, are kids, are kids. And, and about, about a half of the 2 million people who've been permanently displaced by this war are kids. And so for, for, people, for people who are watching key, constituents of, key constituencies of President Biden's, what they need to see him call for is a permanent ceasefire. And we know that diplomacy is what will save lives and what will, what will bring about peace and justice, not war. There is no military solution to the current mass atrocities that are being killed, uh, that, that are being that are being committed, and, and the war crimes, the difficult war crimes that we're seeing that children are suffering the greatest cost of. You you mentioned how uh, Muslim Americans feel about this, and, and and Arab Americans, and we've heard from many where they look and, and they describe they they're seeing what you're describing, they're seeing, and they're saying they can't support. Biden in 2024 because of this, because he hasn't pushed for a ceasefire. This is a race increasingly looking like a Biden-Trump rematch, and, and margins would certainly matter in that. Are you worried that voters who might sit out could help elect Trump, whose record when it comes to Israel, uh, you certainly are aware of, and who has called for things like a Muslim ban? Yeah, I think that's an excellent question, Brianna. Listen, I, you know, you mentioned I'm, I, I recently, uh, up until recently, I was a congressional staffer. I was in the Capitol on January 6th. I know how dangerous the far right and, and, and Trump's insurrectionist party is to people who look like me. I also know that as I am witnessing the atrocities being committed against Palestinian children in Gaza right now, I see my own humanity in those kids, and Arab and Muslim Americans see that same humanity. When we're when we're watching this, we're not thinking, "Are the is it, this isn't a theoretical political question for us? This is a question of whether or not we recognize our own humanity." So, do we do we recognize the humanity of of, of children all around the world or not? And so that that's the question that needs to be asked right now: is what needs to be done to stop the the mass killing of children? That is a permanent ceasefire. And, 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 and President Biden and his team's strategy up until now seems to be, if we just remind, remind everyone how bad, how bad Trump is, then somehow voters will be distracted from the fact that our country, our United States government, is funding mass 
the, the mass killing of children in Gaza. That is a failing strategy. There is a better way. Polls tell us that the president would improve his favorability considerably if he were to call for a permanent ceasefire. And if I were advising him right now, that's what I would advise him to do, not only because it's popular, but because it's the right thing to do to save lives. Clearly a lot uh, of Americans recognize humanity in these pictures that they are seeing Abbas, and, and that is something that the president will be reckoning with. Abbas Alawiya, thanks for your time tonight. Thank you so much, Brianna. Thank you for having me. Unjust, unfair, racist, and wrong. Boston's mayor issuing an apology decades overdue to the families of two black men wrongfully arrested for an infamous murder. An apology from the mayor of one of America's largest cities 34 years in the making after a murder of a white mom-to-be from the suburbs prompted one of the most ruthless police investigations in Boston's history. In October of 1989, Carol Stewart was shot in the head inside of her car. Her husband, Charles, shot in the chest beside her, told police a black man was responsible. And what followed was a crackdown by the Boston Police Department, which launched a vigorous campaign targeting black men throughout the city. The investigation stoked long-standing racial divisions and hardened existing anger in the city's minority communities. Two black men, Alan Swanson and Willie Bennett, were wrongfully named as suspects. They were never formally charged, but just how wrong police were became clear after Charles Stewart's brother told police that Charles orchestrated the whole thing. Today, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu issued an apology to the families of both men who were wrongly accused. I want to say to Mr. Swanson and Mr. Bennett, the entire Bennett family and Boston's entire black community, I am so sorry for what you endured. I am so sorry for the pain that you have carried for so many years. What was done to you was unjust, unfair, racist, and wrong. And joining us now is someone who has covered this story since the beginning, associate editor at the Boston Globe, Adrian Walker. He is the voice behind the Murder in Boston podcast and is part of the team behind the new HBO documentary series, Murder in Boston, Roots, Rampage, and Reckoning. And HBO, of course, is owned by CNN's parent company, Warner Brothers Discovery. Uh, Adrian, thank you so much for being with us. I just wonder, and we, we see the reaction there of folks behind the mayor. What's your reaction to this apology? It was a truly dramatic and unprecedented moment in Boston. It was it was really something to watch. It was a yeah, very important apology. Yeah, it really is. You see the the words that she chose and how that impacted uh, people listening there in that room. Can you talk to us a little bit about how painful the fallout from these false accusations has been for the families and for the entire black community in Boston from the late 80s through today? The, the fallout has been really dramatic. You know, as part of our reporting, or two years of reporting, to put together the podcast and the series that ran in the Globe, we talked to members of the Bennett family, and, you know, they talked about how searing this has been and how much they have suffered and how they have been unable to get out from under this. So it, it's something that they and people throughout Mission Hill, the community where this all happened, people have carried this with them for 34 years. In your fabulous podcast and and in your reporting on this story, you have taken a hard look at missteps covering this murder 
investigation, uh, clearly people, uh, clearly police relying on what the husband said in this case. What lessons can be learned from this? What stood out the most to you? Well, I mean, the fact that stood out the most for me was the revelation that 33 people, 33, knew that Chuck Stewart had done it before he went off the Tobin Bridge. That was just astounding. I mean, you would have thought that somebody knew, but nothing like that. And I think the lesson has been to be, you know, more skeptical and less credulous about official sources, about what police say, about what prosecutors say. Some may say that delayed justice is uh, better than no justice at, at all. Is this apology justice? What do you think about that? Is there more to be done? I think this apology is a first step towards justice. You know, one of the questions we asked a lot of people we talked to is, you know, what would justice look like now? And I don't, I don't think it's enough to make these families feel whole. So I think, you know, there's probably more to be done. Yes. You can't give them back this time, right? You can't undo the damage. Uh, but certainly right. this is something. Adrian, thank you so much. We appreciate your time tonight. Thanks so much for having me. And next hour on CNN, join the conversation with Gail King and Charles Barkley, King Charles, starting right here at 10 Eastern. And up next, Rite Aid banned from using facial recognition technology, how the company's use of artificial intelligence went very awry. Finally tonight, Rite Aid was slapped with a five-year ban on using facial recognition technology in its stores. That's because a government investigation found that the drugstore chain falsely accused customers of crimes and on top of that, unfairly targeted people of color. The company was accused of using AI-based software to identify people deemed likely to engage in shoplifting or other criminal behavior. That's a quote there. The Federal Trade Commission found that employees publicly accuse people of criminal activity in front of friends, in front of family and strangers even, and some customers were wrongly detained and even searched. In a statement, Rite Aid says it's pleased to reach an agreement with the FTC, but added it fundamentally disagrees with the facial recognition allegations in the complaint. And thank you so much for joining us this evening. King Charles starts now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.